You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So welcome to Derms and Conditions, our podcast series that we're very proud of. We're in our third season. Um, I'm Jim Dorasso here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you have not already started out having a good day, you will right now, because we have with us Adam Friedman. Adam Friedman, he was on with us once before, and he, he did a great job. He talked about cannabinoids and, and nanoparticles, and but he texted me after. He said, Jim, I don't quite think I, I was on top of my game. Is you know, And, and he, he's a f- phenomenal guy, brilliant guy, and, and a great speaker. And, you know, I, I didn't really perceive that, but I said, okay, we're going to give him a second chance, like that 38 special hit from years ago. Half our people listening probably don't even know the song, but we're going to give him a second chance, which we're going to call Adam Friedman Unplugged. So, Adam, it's great to have you here today, and we're looking forward to you talking about many things and presenting what you think is clinically relevant from all the different things you work on. So it's great to have you here today. Thank you, Jim. You know, I, I would say, and I'm sure you can relate, uh, when we're introduced, whether we're giving a talk at a regional national meeting, it's always so awkward when someone reads your bio. I'll have to say that was the best introduction I've ever received. Um, and uh, probably my facial expressions, which only you can see, uh, certainly emulate that. So thank you for the warm welcome. And thank you for giving me another shot. I don't, I don't know if I could have gone on if I did not have another opportunity to redeem myself in front of you and, of course, all your amazing listeners. <laughs> I've seen some of your residents. They say you're losing sleep. Like, uh, they don't understand why. I knew why. Okay, Recurrent intelligent effluviums over and over again. Oh, I mean, over not, and over For me, again. not COVID. It was a podcast folly that set that right. sucker off. So <laughs> that, thank that, you for having me back. <laughs> so, so, so Adam is chair of the Department of Dermatology at GW, George Washington School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and he's also the residency program director. And I'm going to open this up. I'm going to ask you to talk about a lot of different things and really tell me, right, so I could tell other people, pass this on, you know, what's important to dermatologists, dermatology physician assistants, the dermatology nurse practitioners, their staff in their offices, why these things are so important. So let's start with a project I know you got involved with that has to do with that atlas, right? And you have worked with others to put together an atlas that spans the spectrum of how skin diseases look from the lightest of light to the darkest of dark and everywhere in between. So you can give us a little capsule of that. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you giving me the forum to talk about a project that certainly is a passion project. Um, that I've had the good fortune of working with so many. But, you know, where this really spawned from was over the years and, and throughout my career, I've had a good fortune of being at two really great institutions, both Albert Einstein College of Medicine and now at GW, and and being in, in, in the middle of it, being always in academia, part of a residency program, being the role of whether it be associate or full program director, and appreciating uh, really looking for gaps that we could hopefully fill to really improve the training experience, which then in turn translates to into the patient experience. And and one that certainly had emerged, and uh, I and my co-editor, Dr. Misty Alarian, with whom I, I could not have really see myself doing anyone doing this with anyone else. Uh, this was a, a passion topic for both of us that we'd commiserate regarding the resources available. But really what we saw was simple in that 
more often than not, we would have textbooks or Alice's that would portray a skin condition, no matter how common or rare, maybe with one flavor. So one image, one skin tone. And then we'd also have Alice's that would focus on particular demographics. And, and really our, our gripe was that this should all be under one roof, that dermatology is all inclusive and we shouldn't have to go to different resources to get the 31 plus flavors that Baskin Robbins or dermatology has to offer that really it should all be under one roof, one resource that allows you to appreciate even the minute nuances that can differ due to a location on the body, skin tone, gender, those things that can influence the appearance of skin disease. And so that's where the full spectrum, as you so perfectly noted, the full spectrum of dermatology atlas came about is that really to take just focusing on skin tone alone, different skin tones and put them side by side, same area on the body, same disease. So one can appreciate how even acne, one of your faves can look very different on different skin tones um, with the purpose of arming our trainees, but even our community, you know, you mentioned dermatologists, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, whoever arming them with a resource that enables them to better and more accurately diagnose a skin disease. And then of course, get a patient on the right course, but also to say to the overall populace that we are intent on filling these divides and gaps to ensure that all dermatologists can take care of all skin. So I'm, um, you know, first of all, now I'm going to lose sleep. Because you said you couldn't do it with anyone else. You couldn't have done it with Jim Del Rosso. I, oh, I, I'm crushed. You're, I'm you're crushed. right. A, a close I'm second. Crushed. A close second. Okay, close you're absolutely second. right. But, you know, it's interesting because you made a great point. Years ago, Ted Rosen, who we all know and love, Uncle Teddy from Houston, he had an atlas, the atlas black skin. And I always had to go to that to look up and see. He had great pictures in there. He does great photography. And that's from ages ago, but it's a great atlas. But that's Agreed. where I had to look up. You know, you rarely did have black skin or, you know, mostly they were Caucasian, you know. Correct. You know, certain, not always white of white, but they were in that one one family. And that's just the way it was at that time. That's not casting stones at anybody, but we're, we have the capability of doing what you're doing. So, so I thank you for that. So how do I get this atlas? Yeah, well, I, I, I want to I piggyback on what you just said, that we, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So you mentioned Ten Rosen, Susan Taylor, Andrew Alexis, and there are many others who, especially during a time where there maybe weren't the resources or investment or focus on ensuring that the educational tools before us were all inclusive. Um, and, and they really set the, the tone and the landscape for Dr. Larry and I. And also I have to say this, this, this took a village. Like we had students, we had residents, we had faculty from all over the country contributing and actually now getting to your question about where can you get your hands on this? This is a living, breathing, evolving uh, entity in that not only do we have a physical atlas that we are trying to hand out at um, every conference possible, but there's an online free gallery where you can download every image and more from the atlas to utilize in a lecture, to utilize in uh, just even your clinic if you have a bunch of students and you want to show what something looks like in different skin tones. Um, and that's on the JDD.com website that you can 
if you log in, you can access every single image and download them for educational purposes. So am I going to need to change my password every three months and spend <laughs> a half hour getting to it, right? It's, like it's, not, an EM, it's <laughs> not an EMR. Don't worry. <laughs> right, right, okay. Or it's not a portal, you know, one right, of these right. portals that you get from everybody, right? So that's great. So every everybody can get it. So let, let's move on to something else. You know, I recently saw, you know, that you were involved with sensitive skin. And it's interesting because over the last three or four months, I've had different people reaching out, you know, survey, what's your impression of sensitive skin? How do you define sensitive skin? That patient that tells you they're sensitive to everything. Uh, and I was really interested in seeing the initiative that I see you're a part of, very interested in it. What can you tell me about what you learned about sensitive skin so far, right? I'm sure it's in its infancy in yep. many ways, but so far, and how you carry that into practice with the patients that you see. Yeah, I, I think you kind of hit on already in that our our understanding and our approach to even diagnosing what I'll call true sensitive skin as a standalone medical entity, not as a symptom of a primary skin disease or maybe a neuropathy. Like rosacea or something like right. that. Right. It's purely standalone. How do we distinguish this? There's very limited information in the literature. There was a paper paper from a few years back which gave some guidance with respect to how do you manage quote unquote sensitive skin that is standalone, which are things that I think we already kind of know recommendations for mild cleansers, moisturizers designed for sensitive skin. But really, there's been so little done in this area. So our, our first step in this, this global initiative is to define sensitive skin as an independent disease, very much like we're seeing with, for example, historically, there's primary hyperhidrosis versus secondary hyperhidrosis. We think about parigonodularis as its own disease state, separate from parigonodularis-like lesions we can see in atopic dermatitis or underlying medical problems. I see the same going here with sensitive skin as a standalone and as, as a symptom of primary skin disease. So first understanding the experience and the, and the data that's out there is very low level in terms of the number of individuals assessed to try to define uh, what is the experience, how can we come up with a validated tool that can allow us to grade the severity or even say someone has sensitive skin and how to follow them over time, but also what are instigators of disease. And so we've done several small, but ultimately evolving into the largest study of its kind, global study uh, assessing over uh, 10,000 individuals from around the globe to really get a, a taste of what is this thing we're calling sensitive skin? What makes it worse? What are triggers? To give us some insight in terms of, well, where should we be looking for pathophysiology? Because if we're going to call it a true disease, there should be a unique pathophys that explains or drives uh, this entity. And, and some very interesting things that we found is, one, it is highly prevalent, extraordinarily prevalent. Overall, in the, in, in, in the world, roughly anywhere from 65 to 70% of people say they have sensitive skin. Now, if you're going to boil it down and say, all right, who has true sensitive skin as its own thing? Now we're getting into like the mid-40 range. But that's still a substantial number of people. From one of our earlier studies, we asked, okay, well, if you have sensitive skin, who are you going to go to? And I wasn't surprised to see it's us. It's dermatologists. It's dermatology practitioners. So I bring that up because we need to be prepared and armed with whatever tools we currently have, which certainly are limited, to be able to assess and then, of course, provide some management strategies to these patients. So they're coming well, to us well, when they you, have it. You just made me think of something here that they may start with us, but it doesn't mean they end up with us. Correct. If we're not addressing it and equipped 
to handle it or give them recommendations or explanations that, you know, make them feel like that was a worthwhile visit to the dermatologist or a question they ask when they're there for something else. They're going to go somewhere else. There yeah. are many places. And who knows how the whole situation is going to end up. So yeah, how far right. are you? How far are you with this as far as coming up with, you know, that like you mentioned pathophysiology, but when we look at disease states now, atopic dermatitis is a perfect example. We get into this focus that there's this pathophysiology of a TH2 disease, but not everybody exactly fits into that. Right. And when they start looking at genetics and endotypes, they see there are patients that have other patterns of disease, which is why they may respond more to one treatment or one approach than another. Is there a possibility of a spectrum with sensitive skin? I, I wouldn't be surprised that it, it, just like so many of the diseases we manage, it's heterogeneous. And there are several studies ongoing, to your point, getting into the nitty gritty, doing, uh, doing genomics, proteomics, looking at potential inflammatory mediators, even the anatomy of the skin in those who say they have true sensitive skin versus someone who maybe has sensitive skin in the setting of acne or rosacea or nothing at all. So the good news is all this work is is being performed. What we know now is several things. So first off, it is a true condition. You can have sensitive skin and have no primary skin disease. And this does affect a good number of individuals. We also know, and this is kind of a pivot from historical data where we historically thought of cosmetics or products being the lead instigator of sensitive skin. We now know from our global study that actually temperature change, specifically going towards the more hotter spectrum, is the leading instigator for an exacerbation of sensitive skin. So environment, heat can certainly play a big role. So not just maybe environmental heat, but also, you know, things that we can do to our skin that can be associated with temperature change or heat seems to be a, a driver of disease. The other piece that was really interesting because one of the ways we structured the study, and granted, this is not complete. We didn't hit every continent. We, we really took time to ensure that the population studied in each country matched the population in terms of demographics. So we wanted to make sure that we were collecting individuals who would self-identify as different racial, ethnic, ethnic uh, backgrounds, which we know those are flawed and non-biological terms, or we allowed patients to self-select what skin tone best matched theirs. And something we found that was very interesting is that the darker one's skin tone is, the greater the severity of that sensitive skin if someone said they had sensitive skin. And there is some actually mechanistic data so, in so the let literature. Me, let me stop you there. there sure. It may not be that the, the incidence or prevalence of sensitive skin is higher in that particular individual or group with darker skin. But when they have sensitive skin, it's more severe. Correct. That, yes. that what I heard? Okay. Yes. And there, there may be actually some mechanistic data in the literature supporting this, looking at uh, the dopaminergic pathway, because when we think about me uh, melanization or melanogenesis, we're talking about the kind of dopamine L-dopa pathway in terms of the enzymatic conversion to melanin. And when we think about these precursors of melanin, these are neurostimulatory agents. And so there does this be, seem to be some correlation between the degree of melanin produced and, and its structure and also the potential for sensitive skin. Also, as you mentioned, in its infancy, but there is some maybe biology that marries this finding that we're seeing globally, which is always, you got to love that bench to bedside connection. So we're learning a lot, but I, I think the, the term in its infancy is still very much relevant because what we're trying to do is get a better understanding of the condition itself, 
how can we actually define the disease? And there actually is a tool called the Sensi scale that we have used in our own research, separate from the individuals who developed this scale, that has reproducibly enabled us to identify those who have true sensitive skin as well as kind of follow their severity. And with this tool, we can then A, assess patients in the clinic setting, but B, we can assess if an intervention is actually working. And we recently did a survey study of residents around the country uh, asking about you know, education on sensitive skin, which no surprise is minimal, but if they had a tool like this, would they employ it? And they said, yes. So I, I think that we have a lot of changes coming in terms of the resources and support to identify these patients, but hopefully to manage them as well with evidence-based guidance, but also evidence-based products. So now, Adam Friedman, you're done talking to Jim Del Rosso, you know, <laughs> and now you're going back into your clinic. Today, what, from what you've learned so far, are you actually using now to help you talk to patients or manage sensitive skin? So there are, there are some lessons learned. So first and foremost, I'm thinking about sensitive skin as its own disease state. So I think very commonly being a vis visual field, if someone says, oh, my skin, it, it, it burns, it itches, if we don't see anything, we may kind of pivot and say, well, this is not really a skin issue, but it is a skin issue. And so I think thinking about and talking to patients about this is validating for the patient, saying that, you know, this is not just a symptom, but rather there's something going on unique to you that is causing you to react to things you put on your skin, to feel sensations of itch or burning or pain as you, uh, you know, go from inside to outside. I think just that admission is validating to the patient. Guidance in terms of uh, avoidance and kind of environmental, avoiding environmental triggers. One thing we found in one of our previous survey studies is that a high percent of patients who A, have sensitive skin, B, are purposely seeking out products that are labeled for sensitive skin are still reacting to products labeled for sensitive skin. So this Because the selection of those products so, and the development of them is not based on a solid foundation. Absolutely. Right? You nailed it. Scientific foundation. Exactly. Right? So so to that end, giving guidance about, and, and really it comes down to trial and error, like just like how we do modified, almost very simplistic patch testing with some of our patients when we tell them to try something out using a little bit on one small surface area to assess for tolerability, that could be part of your dialogue with the patient in terms of allowing them to try things. And that's where also I think samples are hugely important. I know that is like a, a, a bad word in the world of academia. Samples, oh, bad influences decision-making. I think samples are so integral to resident education, but also to managing a wide array of clinical scenarios, whether it be providing a therapy to a patient who could otherwise not get it because of access issues. But in this case, to provide a smorgasbord of potential options that someone could test out before they lay out cash and pay for a product. And then of course, throw it in the trash the next day because it causes irritation. Right. So in Vegas, we would say a buffet of, a buffet. Right? A, a buffet of. <laughs> but you know, you, I'm glad like they have somebody like you in the leadership position you are at a place like GW, the school there. Because some of these people that just jump to, oh, it's bad, samples are influencing, they, they're, they're coming from these bad people in the corporate world that just want to make money, et cetera, that you can actually say, let's step back and do some common sense and see how these things can be used to ben benefit patients. So Absolutely. I, I, I want to, you know, I, I know you have to get back to clinic, but <laughs> I, I want to see, I want, because I... You're involved in a lot of things. Recently, I saw you say, I don't know why, but I'm 
I love lichen planus. So it was something <laughs> that you got into talking about or whatever. So what is the big thing in Adam Friedman's mind that you think is so important right now? And I'm going to lead it into a certain direction, right? So we're in a position now where we have new therapies. We have biologic agents, Janus kinase inhibitors, others. There are more categories than just those two where we have major advances in diseases that we really you, you'd be discouraged when you walked in because you, we didn't have many options. Things like vitiligo, alopecia areata, uh, even so much better with psoriasis and atopic dermatitis now where we had limitations, hidradenitis suppurativa. What I see happening when I look at guidelines per se, which they're just recommendations. People wait for them. Well, what are the guidelines going to say? Like they're the Bible, like you're going to get in trouble if you don't follow them. They're guidelines based on the overall literature from people that hopefully know a lot about it and have clinical experience in addition. But when I look at guidelines, and you said it, when the patient's telling you they have sensitive skin and you don't see something, in dermatology, we're so used to having to see something first before we think we could do anything about it. But there is this what lies beneath with so many diseases. So why do we wait till we see scars on somebody's face with acne or hydratinitis before we start kicking them up to that next level? Because that's when the guidelines say you can go to that, that biologic agent, that so-called more aggressive treatment, which the patient probably needs a lot earlier to stop the disease from progressing. So... I know I asked you an open question, no, but now I, I pinned you down. I, I think it's so important, Adam. Yeah, I, I, I want I want to kind of carry on what you just brought up about this perception that you wait for something to be a hot mess before you ramp up and roll your sleeves up and get aggressive with therapy. And it's really taking this kind of holistic view that there's already something going on beneath the surface before we see the problem. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll make one one out, especially given you know you're you're an acne guy, um, and for so long the guidelines, which you say they're guidance, they're recommendations, they're not the Bible. That you wait till someone is severe nodule cystic acne before you consider isotretinoin. Uh-uh, no chance. Because if you wait that long, maybe you'll be able to interfere with some of the scar formation. Maybe you'll be able to reverse a little bit by in- increasing collagen gene expression. But really. Our goal is to stop the sequelae, prevent them from happening in the first place. And so I found myself very often initiating more advanced therapies in earlier disease to prevent us from getting to those downstream problems. A lot of the primary skin diseases we manage, we can manage them. It's what comes after that is so difficult to manage. Right. Post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, scarring, whether it be hypertrophic, atrophic, regular old scars, doesn't make a difference. Those we don't have great things for, but we can stop them from happening in the first place. We can even go as far as saying comorbidities, where we're seeing a lot of data emerge that potentially using systemic agents, biologics, can prevent or even reverse endothelial damage in psoriasis patients, or maybe prevent comorbidities. Yeah, the disease that it really gets to me with is hydratinitis suppurativa. Oh, yeah. Because we have other diseases that don't scar, and maybe we get to where we really need it to be earlier, a little bit later, we can turn that around. But once the, I'm looking at a patient with hydratinitis, I'm looking underneath, I can't see whether they have sinus tracts forming already and whether they have scarring. You know, I, why do I have to wait for the volcano to explode 
before I say, okay, let's do something about this. So, so I'm glad you're on board with that because you have a lot of influence. You're a big shot in these <laughs> academic circles. So coming, you know, coming from an even bigger shot. I, I appreciate right, I don't that. Know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about, I'm actually smaller. I lost about four inches on my waist. I'm very I, happy. No, about you, that. you looked amazing, my man. Keep it up. You're doing great. Well, I just do it because I'm not as hungry, but you know, <laughs> I'll end with this. My father always told me, and he said, you keep a tree from growing crooked. When you see it first then coming out of the ground and it starts to go crooked, correct it then. Because if you wait till it's grown crooked, he told me this about raising children. He said, I should have intervened with you earlier on some things, right? But it's true. You, and that I think that applies to disease. So I'm going to end with that. And thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Um, thank you for having you, me back. You, you hit it out of the park, right? <laughs> Thank you. Now I can get a good night's sleep. <laughs> yes, you can. But I'm still not going to because of what you said earlier. I, I got tears coming down my eyes. <laughs> and an irreparable wound. My apologies, good Irre sir. <laughs> yeah. You have a great day. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot com. Podcast at dermsquared.com.